When I was in graduate school, I was the teaching assistant for Introduction to Astronomy. I remember one fall afternoon, a timid freshman approached me. He was clearly very nervous. He wanted to ask me a question, one that was nagging in his mind. You see, this young man grew up in central Texas, the son of a devout Christian couple, and his faith was a central part of his life. He grew up building rockets in his backyard, and as he grew older, he dreamt of being an engineer. Full of motivation, he entered the university, until one day, he was shaken to the core when one of his professors told the class you couldn't possibly be religious when accepting science. This young man loved science. He loved figuring out how things worked, but he didn't want to lose his faith either. Unfortunately, a lot of people see science and religion as an either-or. It's black and white. The young man standing in front of me came to me as his astronomy TA, and he wanted to know, could you believe in the Big Bang and remain a Christian at the same time? His professor told him that he couldn't. I told him that his professor seemed to forget that the Big Bang theory was actually drafted by a Catholic priest. Thinking that it's science versus religion is unhelpful. We're missing a lot of useful conversations if we believe it's an either-or. Today we're talking to scientists and clergy members of a range of faiths who gather around the idea, let's stop thinking of science as being the enemy of religion. Let's see what we can do with the constructive conversation between the two. This is Spark Dialogue Podcast. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the story of science and technology and how they're related to society, ethics, history, philosophy, culture, art, religion, and the future. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Hi, I'm Michael Zimmerman. I'm a vegan founder and executive director of the Clergy Letter Project, and I hold a PhD in ecology. Michael also believes that looking at science versus religion as a war isn't helpful. He supports good science and believes that those who are religious can too. In 2004, Michael started an organization called the Clergy Letter Project, which now is a huge international collaboration between scientists and clergy of all denominations, from Christian to Jews, Buddhist to humanist. The Clergy Letter Project is a grassroots organization of about 16,400 clergy members and well over a thousand scientists who have come together to promote uh, the teaching of evolution and to promote the fact that science and religion can be fully compatible. You started this organization in 2004. So what inspired you to do it? It started as a local organization. I was contact. I'd been active in the in the evolution creation controversy for quite some time, and some people in in um, a small town in Wisconsin contacted me asking for help because their local school board uh, was beginning to institute regulations that were the most stringent in the country about teaching of intelligent design and teaching of creationism. From here, things went national. Similar letters from clergy were written, meant for school boards around the country. I decided to go national and try to get 10,000 clergy members from around the country. Perhaps it may seem odd that a group of clergy would spearhead the movement not to teach intelligent design and instead teach good science, which includes evolution. Intelligent design isn't helpful in terms of teaching biology. It's also not helpful in terms of promoting religion because it contradicts and, and runs afoul of many, many clergy members' uh, views of their own religions. That's how we got started. And from there, we've just expanded outward to more events and more activities. What kind of people participate? Are they uh, scientists? Are they religious? Uh, good question. The, the clergy letter is predominantly an organization of, of clergy members. 
Um, as I said, in, in the United States, we have over 16,400 uh, clergy members who have signed on. We also have a list of scientific consultants, scientists who may or may not be religious, but are willing to work with clergy members when they have scientific questions, uh, first to answer their questions, and then secondly, to demonstrate that religion and science can work very comfortably together. These scientists and clergy work together to spread good science, encourage the teaching of evolution, and show how science and religion do not have to be mutually exclusive. They represent many different religious faiths. Virtually all denominations are represented. As of uh, today, we have five different clergy letters. One is for a Christian clergy. Almost every major Christian denomination that you can imagine. We have Southern Baptists, we have Roman Catholics, we have Episcopalians. Presbyterians, Lutherans, you name it. We, we have Mormons, you name it, we probably have it. We have a uh, Unitarian Universalist clergy letter. We have a rabbi clergy letter. We have a, uh, a Buddhist clergy letter. We've just, just started a humanist clergy letter. Every year, these clergy members celebrate Evolution Weekend. It's a chance for them to spread the word about good science to their congregations. Michael Zimmerman explains the purpose of Evolution Weekend. Evolution Weekend um, is an annual event that occurs on the weekend closest to Darwin's birth, which was February 12th, 1809. So this year, it's February 8th through the 10th of February. Um, it's a distributed event, and by that I mean every participating congregation, wherever they are in the world, and this year I think we have six countries represented, does something that they think is valuable for their congregation to promote a better understanding of science and religion. And what's exciting is it gives people in congregations an opportunity to raise the quality of the dialogue instead of just shouting at each other and, and hearing people say, if you believe in evolution, you're going to hell. Um, they do something much more interesting, something that's valuable to them. This year, the theme is the confluence of science and religion. And we're looking, we're looking at ways that religion and evolution uh, lead us to the same conclusions. Uh, for instance, religion tells us that we are all either in reality or metaphorically God's children, and evolution teaches us that the idea of race is, is a misnomer, that there's much more genetic differences within races than there are across races. So that the whole concept of racism is, is a human construct and not a biological and not a religious construct. It leads us to the same kind of conclusion. Similarly, religion teaches us that we need to care for God's creation. And science tells us that communities are complex structures and we have to care for each portion of those complex ecosystems if we're going to continue to maintain those ecosystems and allow those ecosystems to function in a, in a viable manner. So in so many different ways, science and religion come to the same kinds of conclusions. And what Evolution Weekend this year is, is doing is celebrating those similarities. What a concept. Instead of the usual debate of science and religion, maybe we should shift our focus to what these two institutions can teach us together. We're part of the same human family. We should care for the earth, the environment, and all its creatures. These are lessons headed down from our ancestors through religion, and science is showing us why these lessons are so important to learn. The Clergy Letter Project has also spoken out against separation of immigrant children from their families. Because of, of um, the confluence of science religion, the Clergy Letter Project has overwhelmingly endorsed speaking out publicly against separating immigrant children from their parents. And they do it both on, on religious grounds, 
because that's no way to treat children. It's no way to treat immigrants. It's no way to treat the poor among us. And they do it on scientific grounds. We know from science of psychology how much danger and how much damage can be done to children when they're separated from their parents. We know the, da the damage and the danger and long term that can be done to those children when they're, they're kept away from um, reasonable adult care, just loving and care with lots of touching and hugging. For both of those reasons, the Clergy Letter Project has been very outspoken in criticizing the, the kinds of, of policies our current government has been supportive of. Religion and science have led us to exactly the same conclusions, and it's that power of, of confluence that brings the Clergy Letter Project to the fore in, in American society saying religion and science have the same, reach the same conclusions. You need to take it seriously. Whether you're religious, you need to take it seriously, or whether you're, you're a-religious and you just care about science. When, when both sides of, of that discussion come to the same conclusion, maybe that conclusion really is an important one to pay attention to. One person who has thought a lot about how science and religion could work together is Rabbi Jeff Middleman. My name is Rabbi Jeff Middleman. I am the founding director of Sinai and Synapses, which bridges the worlds of religion and science. In Judaism, sometimes there is also a science versus religion mentality. But differing from Christianity, this debate has a slightly different outcome. So in the Jewish community, there's actually a challenge that's very much the flip side of the challenge in the more uh, evangelical Christian community, which is that if people see a conflict between science and religion, generally uh, the evangelical Christians will tend to vote religion over science. In the Jewish community, generally, and by an even bigger number, Jews will choose science over religion. So one line that we often say is that the challenge in the Jewish community is not getting Jews excited about science, it's about getting Jews excited about Judaism. So in our society today, we're seeing a lot of attacks and counterattacks, and really the society and our, our conversation has become so polarized that it's almost become a caricature of one side is scientific and educated and liberal, and the other is religious and uneducated and conservative. And there's a belief that if you pick anything from either of those columns, you've got to pick everything from that column, and it's even better if you demonize the other side. And we are grappling with such huge questions in our society, ranging from climate change to genetic engineering to how we even have constructive political dialogue that we need to be able to say, wait a second, it's not an either-or conversation, but where can I find wisdom from the other side? Where can I at least find out what is exciting or scary or uh, impelling people to be thinking and acting in a particular kind of way so that we can move to a higher level of our conversation? So if science and religion is not a versus, what can they be? What are some other ways that we can look at how we live in the world with both science and religion? We use four models that we often talk about, and they not only start with the, all start with the same letter C, they all start with the same three letters of C-O-N, con. So the lowest level, and what we think is the least productive level, is the conflict model, one versus the other. The next model up is what we might call the concert model, which is if you read the Bible in just the right way, it can help us understand evolution 
or we can read the opening chapters of Genesis to be able to understand the Big Bang Theory, or the National Enquirer will say, we found Noah's Ark or the Garden of Eden. And that works to the extent that it works, except that science is always changing. Science actually aims to disprove more than prove. So anytime that there are changes in what we understand of the science, if you're using the science to to use that to create your theology, then your theology is going to be not very stable there. Uh, The next model up is what we might call the contrast model. Science is on one side, religion is on the other. They can live very happily in separate worlds. The problem with that is that we live in an intellectual climate where everything that had been in the realm of, of religion, science has been encroaching into. So for a long time, it was the source of truth. Religion was the source of truth. Science replaced that. And then it became, okay, religion is the source of ethics. Well, there are a lot of people who are religious and not ethical, and a lot of people who are ethical and not religious. And so what had been the realm of religion, science has been encroaching into over the last thousands of years there, hundreds or thousands of years. So the highest level that we think of in the most constructive way is what we would call the contact model. Because the biggest questions that we face are ones where we need wisdom or at least can find wisdom from both religion and science. The biggest questions that we face are not religious and they're not scientific, they're human. And so how we can find the language to talk about these questions in a religious perspective or a scientific perspective, we can bring both of those together to address some of those questions that we're grappling with. Jeff has founded a really awesome organization. It's called Sinai and Synapses, and it's one of the organizations seeking to make connections between science and religion. Sinai and Synapses aims to be able to bridge the worlds of religion and science and equip people with new tools and new language to think about issues where science and religion can both bring wisdom to bear. So that could be anything from how do we know what we know, to questions of awe and wonder, to very practical questions of how do we address climate change, what are some of the issues surrounding CRISPR-Cas9 technology. A pastor can say something that rethinks the way a doctoral student does her dissertation and the way uh, a professor of engineering is going to change the way a UCC minister is going to give her sermon. We also have a couple of projects specifically in the Jewish community, one called Scientists in Synagogues where all of these amazing top-notch scientists who were members of congregations, we aim to be able to equip them with some ways to integrate their scientific work in their Jewish life and become role models and ambassadors to be able to say, I can actually bring my Judaism and my, and, and my scientific work together and show how I think about genetics or the science of compassion or the way technology is changing who we are. Now we travel to Arkansas and go to a place where science and religion were often viewed as a conflict. Hi, I'm Jason Wiles. I'm a biology professor at Syracuse University. My research focuses on socio-scientific issues, uh, notably around the teaching and learning of uh, biological evolution. I am also a humanist celebrant and chaplain. Jason has a really interesting origin story. He has a bachelor's degree in biology with a minor in Bible. Even though Jason majored in biology, there was no talk of evolution in his curriculum. 
Some professors, however, talked about evolution in hushed tones in the hallway. Slowly, Jason came to realize there was more to biology than what he was learning. It wasn't necessarily the science itself that helped me to change my mind. Uh, it was a lot of uh, social and emotional factors that were involved. Basically, what happened was uh, during my time at a very uh, conservative Christian university for my undergrad, you're right, it wasn't part of the curriculum at all, but there were professors who had personally come to terms with evolution, uh, accepted evolution, but couldn't necessarily talk about that in the classroom. Every now and then, however, a few of them would make some comments uh, or ask some questions that would lead students who were really thinking about it to, to think about things for themselves. So I was intrigued, but in, in a very skeptical and an almost fearful way. And it wasn't until I was in graduate school taking a graduate level uh, course on evolution that I really started to wrestle with these things. And it had a lot of implications for my social structure, the way that I thought about myself. Um, I was learning a lot of things that I hadn't learned before. And one of the things that was very important was that uh, as I learned more about evolution, how it works, the framework of biology around evolution, I started to understand that all the things that I had memorized really actually fit together in ways that uh, I couldn't have understood without it. And for the first time ever, I was actually able to have a good idea of what I should expect given you know some question or problem in biology without having memorized the answer first. And it really changed the whole way that biology worked for me from one where you're basically just acquiring knowledge that other people have put together to one of being able to um, come up with good hypotheses because you have some framework of understanding beyond what you've already learned. Evolution is not only relegated to biology. It's part of humanity's knowledge in so many fields, from an understanding to medicine, to ecology, to how humanity fits into the larger framework of the world. You know, so many of the issues that we have with our physical bodies are there <laughs> because our bodies have come from a, a physical process that involves co-opting uh, structures that were already there for new functions. And you, you're left over with a lot of things that, you know, really aren't optimal from a quote-unquote design perspective, but are much more uh, easily explainable um, with uh, the idea of natural selection and evolution. It certainly informs, uh, you know, medicine and why things are the way they are, uh, as well as, you know, how we can make them the way that they should be. That goes not only for our bodies, but for the world around us when we're thinking about ecological issues and agricultural issues and understanding the way that ecosystems are, the way that the, the life on the planet works together or not together uh, is all wrapped up in the history of those systems. Uh, so if we want to know what to do about climate change and how living organisms will respond to that, well, uh, understanding evolution is very important. If we want to understand um, food security and um, you know things about our agricultural system, evolution is actually a very big part of that. How did we get the crops that we have now? Uh, well, through an, a directed form of evolution, essentially. Um, but we have to consider how our agriculture works with the natural systems that influence them. Uh, pesticides, for example, and herbicides. As uh, a humanist, I'm very much interested in our human agency and what we can 
do to work together. So I'm less worried about things that people believe differently uh, and focusing on those differences as I am looking at the things that are common between us and how we can work together. I appreciate the diversity that we have as humans, and I think that's part of our strength. But there are a lot of things that we really do need to um, work together on and recognize that we do have responsibility to work together toward the greater good of humanity. The Clergy Letter Project has been extraordinarily useful uh, to uh, educators um, uh, across the country and probably beyond. Um, We definitely know that um, there are many factors involved in students' understanding and acceptance of evolution. Um, And it's not that educators and scientists want to change people's religious beliefs because of some, you know, malicious uh, ideology or or wanting to be right at the expense of someone else being wrong. It's really a matter of uh, here we have something that's fundamental in the practice and understanding of biology, and um, we uh, need to teach biology with that uh, understanding of the framework. We know that there are many people who have um, religious uh, barriers to understanding and accepting evolution, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the crisis of faith that it can be for some students. And I think the clergy letter is a really important tool for helping uh, students to overcome what I call the uh, false dichotomy. There are a lot of people who have the idea that in order to understand and accept evolution, that means that I can't believe in God anymore. And when that's part of your central identity, then that's a very tough sell. So the Clergy Letter Project has been um, a very important tool. Over 15,000 Christian clergy, we're talking preachers, priests, ministers who have signed on to this very clearly worded statement in in support of the teaching of evolution uh, and also supporting uh, the truth of scripture. So it's a a nice way for students or members of the public to say, you know what, here are 15,000 Christian religious leaders who have reconciled evolution, maybe I can think about this for myself uh, as well. And uh, it's not just limited to Christian clergy. There are many uh, rabbis and uh, Unitarian Universalist clergy and Buddhist clergy who have signed on to similar statements. And now we have added the, um, the clergy of humanists. My name is Lori Bevenauer. I'm senior pastor at St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Carmel, Indiana. Lori shared that I invited her to be on this podcast with her congregation. I serve in a what I would describe as a thinking congregation. And so when this podcast first contacted me, I mentioned to the congregation this past Sunday, I said, you know, there's a podcast and they want to talk about how churches can have people who believe in evolution as well as faith. And there was this long pause and then this eruption of laughter because to our folks, this is a no-brainer. <laughs> they, they see their faith and their understanding of science and nature as deeply connected. Um, and admittedly, we often live in a bubble in that we are very much a congregation and a people of faith who see that this connection is there and runs really deep. Uh, and we forget that this is a hang-up for many people. So uh, in our setting, 
it's sort of a constant conversation about how what we are experiencing in faith and the many expressions of faith and religion, um, how those weave together with science is a place that we rest comfortably. I would say the most common place that we see it come through is in conversations about eco-justice. So looking at the world around us and realizing that, that we have a lot to learn. And the place that that starts for most of us is that we tend to dwell in questions more than we do in answers. And of course, in scientific method, everything begins with a question. Um, quite frankly, that's most of how our faith conversations begin as well, is in a question. So it seems like a natural pairing for us that we would use a similar method to begin with a question and continue to dig deeper and deeper and deeper. So for us, science actually bolsters faith. We dwell in the questions, not in the certainties. We see Jesus doing that all of the time, asking more and more questions. Um, and there is certainly a dialogue within our congregation of wanting to experiment in the way that scientists do and figure out where we might end up if we travel along certain question paths. Well, I'm very glad to hear that your congregation burst into laughter. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of a great moment. <laughs> yeah. So so you mentioned questions, especially when it comes to ecology and mm -hmm. how we take care of the earth. So in your opinion, or in your experience, where have there been some overlap between religion and science in this area? When we look at our scriptures, we see that there can be stories that hold truths even if the stories themselves are not factual. And so when we look back at some of these stories, we can learn from them. And one of the things that we noticed in many stories in the Bible, as well as other sacred texts, is that people kept going back to the land and they would pay attention to what was around them. And there are always conversations um, and mentions of the waters around us and the stars above and the plains and the deep roots of the trees and the branches. And so we took those stories and started to look at our own environment and that led us into a desire to start a native habitat, basically recognizing that we didn't need to keep mowing the lawn around the church and that we could instead plant native grasses and plants and flowers and allow something to do what it would naturally do. Uh, so that's been a good experiment for us. And that led into also looking further and saying, well, if we're going to take care of the land in that way, maybe there's a way to use other resources uh, in a similar way. And that launched us into a project where we are now using solar panels to power part of our building and changing over light bulbs to be more energy efficient that way. And so it becomes sort of this spiraling conversation of what can we do better and how can we be more respectful of the world around us and really nurture that. I can think of another uh, good example for that. And when we're talking about climate change, and I think the social call that you see that originates from religion also echoes what we see what's going on in the world right now, especially when it comes to climate change, because the poorest nations, islands of the South Pacific or places like Bangladesh are suffering the most from climate change 
rather than, you know, the maybe the richer countries who can actually afford to do something for the people that live there. And sadly enough, this these people in these countries aren't the ones that actually are responsible for climate change for the most part. That's right. That's right. And so I would say that there's also a conversation that pushes us towards recognizing our privilege. That, that says, you know, look at the world and the bounty that is around you. And then also how you can make sure that others have that opportunity as well and aren't in scenarios where um, they are being hurt or oppressed, um, but also have resources that, be co- that could be used for them. There is no question that Lori and her congregation think that their faith is compatible with, say, evolution. For Lori, she even sees evolution at work in her own personal life in a unique way. It's a personal story that's very real for me right now. So um, I have a three-year-old who has just discovered the beauty of puzzles. However, she does not approach those puzzles in the way that I would. And what I mean by that is she apparently thinks you're supposed to do a puzzle by putting pieces of the same colors together. I would prefer to look at a puzzle color. And I find myself really frustrated um, wanting her to do it my way. But I also realize that there is an evolution of thought, an evolution of understanding. And at some point, she might look at edges and find that to be a helpful way of doing a puzzle. But right now, she's teaching me that there is another way to do a puzzle with the understanding that she has. And I think that that translates to most relationships where there is more to learn than what we realize. But I'm literally watching that evolution of knowledge and sharing and that engagement develop right before me. For congregations out there that do see a problem with science versus religion, they call it a versus, which I think is not a very helpful terminology. But why is it dangerous to label this as a versus? Mm. (laughs) because then there are winners and losers and that rarely goes well. You know, I think that we are, we have a tendency, at least in our American Western culture to want certainty. And I believe that that's a myth. And I believe that that's a myth that Christianity has exploited in a lot of ways. We, um, as a broader context, Christianity has suggested that we have answers Um, And in some ways, we've even suggested that we understand the world the best, when in actuality, the world is constantly teaching us. And so for me, the danger of pitting science against religion is that it's not a a win scenario. It is a conversation scenario. It um, It is a weaving together. It is something that can be nurtured in many different ways. And there's just a richness and a depth to that that causes us to be fuller parts of our communities. And to simplify in this scenario to me is dangerous. Hi, I'm uh, Sensei Tony Stoltz, and I am the director of the Blue Mountain Lotus Society, Buddhist minister, spiritual teacher. I've been teaching for a little over 30 years. I oversee a Buddhist community in the United States. We're called the Sangha. And I'm also always writing articles for various magazines. And I have a very deep interest in the relationship between science and spirituality. Now, Tony is a Buddhist minister. But as a child, he dreamt of being an astronaut. 
Well, I was born in 1963, so I grew up in the era of everybody being very excited about the uh, lunar projects, and I wanted to be an astronaut. I got my, one of my earliest memories is being outside with my mother and looking up at the moon and, and just fascinated by the idea that there were people walking around up there. And I think like a lot of uh, kids my age, I fantasized and played, made cardboard boxes into spaceships and uh, was just totally obsessed with that. <laughs> when people think of religion and science, they don't often think of Buddhism. <laughs> How is it unique coming from the Buddhist mindset? Like, What is that relationship between religion and science? Well, I think that uh, Buddhism, uh, in my opinion, is probably the, the tradition that's most easily you can communicate most easily back and forth. Buddhists in general don't have issues with science like some other faith traditions might. I think of someone like the Dalai Lama, who is involved in a lot of science conferences. There's a lot of scientists who have an interest in Buddhism and even consider themselves crypto-Buddhists in the sense that they see a lot of parallels between Buddhist thought and you know, things that we know about our world. Tony has written a very interesting article about how it all started, that is, why the theory of evolution creates such a fuss in the religious world. But to understand that, we first have to step back in time to when Darwin first came up with his theory, in the midst of the Victorian world. At this period of time, the more refined you were, the more distant you were from nature. Things natural, animal, and sexual were repressed and humankind was seen as having full dominion over the world. Enter Darwin's theory. Suddenly, we're not above the animals, but animals ourselves. If we no longer have a special place in the world, does this strip life of its meaning? Some people believe so. Our world became one where survival of the fittest reigned supreme, and we just come down to the strength of our genes. But did Darwin actually intend his theory to be thought of this way? It's interesting when people talk about Darwin because there's a lot of you know, you always hear the phrase survival of the fittest, which was originally actually quoted by Herbert Spencer. And then Darwin picked it up at, I think, the influence of Huxley. But it was, you know, very quickly came into play in a way that I don't think that Darwin intended. For him, he was very motivated, at least some, some scholars today uh, seem to indicate that he was motivated in some ways by his desire to show that humans were one in some sense, that there was a unity there. There are folks that have indicated that he possibly may have had some understanding of Buddhism. A friend of his was a, one of the first, I think, English specialists in Buddhist studies a guy named Thomas Hooker, who uh, actually was one of the first uh, scholars to go into Tibet. And he, he and Darwin were very close, and he was very close with Darwin's wife, Emma. Uh, and so we know this was a part of his mindset because uh, one of Darwin's kids was uh, nicknamed Little Lama because he was so wise and compassionate. So I think that there was you know, a lot of influences going on in Darwin's life. He was influenced by when he went to uh, school originally to uh, be a clergyman in the Anglican Church. He was very influenced by Henslow, and Henslow saw, uh, you know, a deep relationship between the natural 
sciences and spirituality. So, you know, I don't, I don't think it was in any way Darwin's uh, intent to do anything other than to present things that he felt, first of all, was an observation of the natural world, but also that it had some meaning. He was an abolitionist, so he was anti-slavery. And some uh, scholars today seem to indicate that he he had some impetus in that sense, too, that he wanted to show that we were, in a sense, all one. We had a common origin. Darwin's intention was very likely not to abolish religion with this theory. Rather, he was inspired by the idea, we are all one. As an abolitionist, he saw the injustice of slavery. He wanted to show that we, independent of our skin color, have a common origin. We are part of the same human family. But unfortunately, that's not how people took it. But it had a deep effect on the psyche, I think, of the people at that time. He was basically saying that humans and animals have a common origin. And it was just, it it was fascinating to see how that affected the psyche of human beings at that time. I think that you could argue that the so-called Victorian sexual experience of and popular subjects is a kind of prudery and we also saw it in the sense of even people developing you know the use of foodware like knives and forks and how we might name food instead of calling them breasts and legs you know we started giving them other names so it was fascinating to see how humans kind of rebelled against this idea that we were related to animals it kind of knocked us down a peg in some people's minds Rather than looking in this way that people looked at evolution in the Victorian world, they were nervous. They are not special anymore. They don't have this privileged place in the universe. But now you can look at it in this very different light. And like you mentioned, it's very similar to Buddhist teachings where we learn about the oneness of all life. So how do you think this is uniquely reflected in evolution? Well, I think that the, you know, when, when people ask me, you know, to describe Buddhism or define it very simply, Buddhism is the word Buddha, which is more related to the idea of an action, like the way a flower buds, Bud. Uh, it's the idea of awakening to the oneness of all life, how everything is interconnected. And so I think one of the primary things that Darwin's theory of evolution helps us to see, especially today with genetic studies, et cetera, that everything is interrelated. You know, everything in the universe, uh, in some sense, is interconnected. Uh, The things that make up my body, those elements atomically and so forth, are related to, geez, stars that died billions of years ago. And, you know, everything on this planet, not just uh, related to primates, but we're related to bananas and uh, (laughs) worms and everything. Perhaps science and religion don't need to be divorced. So when we're thinking about the human condition, uh, what it means to be a human, I think that's a place where religion is a tool that has been used to think about our place in the universe. And that doesn't necessarily have to be uh, something that is divorced from science. I think science has a lot to uh, tell us about our place in the universe. And when we're trying to come up with, you know, kind of answers to these questions about the human condition, we might rely on science for some of the answer, but necessarily not all of the answer. There are both ways to view our place in the universe, to understand where we belong and why we're here. 
because we're the first human culture where why things matter and how things work became separated. So I think that any way that spiritual traditions, and certainly I'm a Buddhist, so I'm going to speak from that perspective, anything we can do to help that conversation along, I think will produce stronger offspring, folks that don't feel alienated. They give us insights into how to be stewards of the earth, how to treat others regardless of nationality and race, and to let us know who we are as humans and where we belong. I would say the most powerful and inspiring expressions of faith that I have seen are rooted in question and curiosity, and that is the basis of science, and it makes it a natural partnership and one from, from which all of us benefit. So I challenge you, let's have the dialogue move beyond the same old science versus religion debate. Let's see what we can offer one another and perhaps we'll find a better, more peaceful, and more enlightened way of looking at the universe. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can listen to us on the web at sparkdialogue.com. Thanks for joining us, and see us in two weeks for another episode. Some of the background music you heard is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. Other music are clips from today's special, Jam Tomorrow by Dr. Turtle, Chatelet by Maiden, Appalachian Coal Mines 120 and 4x4 by Midair Machine, Home at Last by John Bartman, Peace Out by Airtone featuring Kung Fu, and Forest Frolic by Kevin McLeod. They are provided by the Creative Commons license. More information about these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.